0: Kids, as young as 12 years old, you know, all this hoopla about ADD and ADHD. Uh ADHD is, is a real thing. It's a little overstated, over recorded in US, but it's a real thing. But it's nothing compared to telling people that, you know, you're, the kids are still myelinating. They're actually building their brains up to age 20, 21. And you're seeing white matter disease in children because of diet? that by far supersedes any danger of ADD, ADHD, or anything else, because you're structurally damaging the brain that early. So we think that people shouldn't just wait till they have memory issues. Um, They shouldn't wait till they have some stroke or vascular disease. They should assume that if we're not eating the healthy food, that you're actually affecting the brain early on.
1: where we discuss the multiple determinants of what allows you to lead your best life. Dementia is the defining disease of our time. In the UK, it is the leading cause of death. Almost a million people suffer with it, and one in every 14 people in the population aged over 65. And it's growing. The most common type is Alzheimer's, and the treatment well there are none and after decades of research and billions of pounds spent we have a few drugs that mildly improve symptoms but nothing close to a cure and so when i came across lifestyle measures including diet exercise and community based interventions that could reduce the risk of getting dementia by 70 80 or even some people are saying 90% i had to get dr dean and dr aisha serzai on the pod to talk about their research. They are a unique husband and wife team on the cutting edge of brain science and dedicated to educating people on the simple steps to long-term health and wellness through their work as directors of the Alzheimer's Prevention Program at Loma Linda University Medical Center with patients as well as through online writing, videos and books at teamshireseye.com. Dr. Dean Sherzai is a behavioral neurologist and neuroscientist whose entire life has been dedicated to behavioral change models at community and population level. And Dr. Aisha Sherzai finished two residencies at Loma Linda University in preventative medicine and neurology. She also holds a master's in advanced sciences from UCSD and completed a fellowship in vascular neurology from Columbia University. Today's podcast is going to cover a number of different things. We talk about how they became interested in brain health and their personal reasons why they go into plant-based eating, the prevalence of dementia in the US and the UK, the brain as a huge energy and oxygen consuming organ, and their community-based research after today's podcast you're going to learn a lot about creating habit uh, loops and why a plant forward eating pattern is critical to preventing dementia as well as a whole bunch of other issues as well that we see in medicine. We also talk about specific foods that Team shows I call out as helpful for the brain which you'll come across. You will also learn about the issues around nutritional science and why this information is taking just so long to trickle down into clinical uh, practice that everyone has access to. You'll learn about the main cells involved in brain health, uh, namely the neurons and the glial cells, and just why diet, lifestyle and other factors are becoming top of importance amongst traditional medical communities and why prevention is the cure. Um, We go into a bit of detail about uh, the genes known to play a role in dementia risk and and how the bare minimum of those are deterministic. So if you have come across APOE um, or the other uh, genomic tests that uh, claim to give you uh, risk factors around Alzheimer's, you'll learn about just how much scope there is for lifestyle intervention to prevent disease as well i'm not saying it's everything I'm not saying you know it's it can make you your brain tip top but it certainly has a huge impact on your risk Um, and we also talk about why better brain health supports your immune system and all the other parameters of of how you can improve uh, your brain health today for um, not only prevention but also improved cognition improved performance uh, and in improved happiness as well you can find all of this information and more in their new book the 30-day alzheimer's solution it is a fantastic resource uh, as is their previous book the alzheimer's solution i've learned so much from them and i'm sure you'll find it useful as well for now onto the pod So first of all, thanks so much for making time uh, in the morning to, uh, to to jump on the podcast. I, I wanted to kick off things because I've been following you guys for a while now. I think your work is wonderful. Um, I wanted to ask how you started becoming interested in the brain um, and ultimately a plant-based way of living. Because I understand, at least from what I know of Dean, that you weren't really a plant-forward eater.
0: Yeah, and, not, and as I said, um, not even close. Um, I grew up in a family of doctors, um, uh, Northeast United States, New Jersey, Pittsburgh—you uh, know, the, those kind of places. Um, the, as, as it happens, uh, I always say this: um, surgeons think they're hunters. So we had a farm for hunting alone, and and as it happened, uh, thank goodness for the animals, they, they were her- horrible hunters. Uh, we would always uh, go out the whole day uh, trying to hunt in this huge piece of land and then come back home and go to, to some shop and get the meat and you know eat so it was not even in my mindset uh, to be plant centered and uh, we and I, I I played sports in Pittsburgh in you know, soccer tennis and everything else and it was seven meals a day even beef jerky eating meat and so uh, it, it happened about 2002 when I went to Afghanistan where I was asked I was at NIH at the time doing Work in building ten experimental therapeutics branches that as esoteric as wonky and, and 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 as you can get. It's the center of research, the weirdest research you can think of. Um, and I was asked by HHS and World Bank to come to Afghanistan to help rebuild the healthcare system. So I went there, and lo and behold, in a party, this lovely person comes, sits next to me. Yes, she, will, her story is a little <laughs> different, but we uh, <clears throat> <he> starts talking. <laughs> And our first conversation was around our grandparents. And um, our first conversation was one of those events where my grandfather, who was the foundation of the family, he was the secretary of education, brilliant, brilliant man, poet, philosopher. Uh, He would be in the center of gathering in this farm uh, where everybody would gather on the weekends. He would be playing chess. And uh, on one of those occasions, and he was phenomenal in chess, he forgot how to move the knight. And for those who play chess, um, knight has a, this unusual L-shaped move And he forgot. And, and everybody in the family, you know, dozens of grandchildren just in shock, like what's going on? Mm. And at the time we were young, so we, we weren't familiar. And that was a foundational moment. And that was the moment that actually, without knowing so, pushed me towards neuro. I didn't go to, neuro, mm. uh, to uh, surgery, general surgery, went to neuro. Aisha experienced the same thing with her grandfather, which was a brilliant Columbia train, um, Hopkins trained prime minister of a country who developed Alzheimer's as well.
2: Yeah, my, my grandfather was, um, he was, you know, one of those individuals who essentially was the hero of the family. Everybody wanted to be him. The way he spoke, the way he talked, the way he interacted with individuals and to see a person of his stature and his intellect Slowly and gradually lose parts of himself left a very deep mark on us um, as children, and we we remember him um, not remembering his children's names and uh, confusing us with strangers and being scared of us, pushing us away locking himself into his room and so that was quite a painful experience for our parents and for us growing up and we were i was intrigued about learning what really was going on what is dementia and how is it mm. you know how does it take away your yourself your 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 sense of existence and so going through college, that's how I decided to get into neuroscience. And when I had that first conversation with Dean and the but similarity. What
0: you to sit next to me? Well,
2: of course, it was your looks <laughs> and your charm and this beautiful yeah. personality. And it was an amazing time. You'll be time.
0: paid later. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, you know, when, uh, um, he's he's humble about it But um, Dean He was in the experimental therapeutics Branch of the NIH here in the United States And when he went to the United States I'm sorry, Afghanistan He became the prime minister there He actually changed the healthcare system deputy For minister. the deputy minister um, He changed the healthcare system For um, the department uh, Or the, the ministry of health And he created these programs For women's empowerment Where this is interesting. He actually recruited about 20,000 girls who were educated up to grade six. And he created a nursing program for them, Essential, essentially just teaching them um, very basic healthcare techniques like how to give ampicillin if somebody has upper mm. respiratory tract infection, how to create oral rehydration solution, or how to tell the difference between spotting and bleeding if a woman is pregnant because the next tertiary care hospital was days away. Um, mm. And so these women became community leaders and so there was a there was a there was a paradigm shift in in the realm of public health and so when you see things like that when you see when you make an impact like that is just a phenomenal way of living and when we came back to the united states i was there with doctors without borders um mm. just as a medical student uh volunteering with them in in refugee camps and when we came back here we went back to um, neurology. At the time, we went to UC San Diego. Dean started his fellowship in neurodegenerative diseases of the brain. And I did neuroimaging research in Alzheimer's disease. And it was a, it was a bleak field in yeah. Alzheimer's.
0: Uh, so, immediately, we're, we were a bit of a risk takers. UCSD was the number one neuroscience program in the country. And after that, we, the, the, the path was kind of set. You know how it is. If you come from a place like that, and NIH, you, you go to Boston and other, you know. And we said, nah, we're going to take a risk. You know, we've done the clinical trials. We've done those poor mice. We sacrificed thousands of them and looking into the hippocampus. And it wasn't getting us the result. In fact, hundreds of millions of dollars spent on brain health research and zero treatment. The treatments mm-hmm. we have are not curative or even disease-modifying. They're just symptomatic, I mean, minimally symptomatic. So we said, there's got to be a model of prevention somewhere. So we looked around. Our mentor was Elizabeth Barrett-Connor, this powerful woman who had 900 publications, and, and we had the, Dilip Jeste, who was the head of NIMH, who had another 900 publications. Really like These are They looked at prevention and... So we said, you know, we're going to take a risk and look. And lo and behold, about 80 miles away is Loma Linda. Loma Linda is the only blue zone. For those people who know about blue zones, these are the healthiest places in the world. And it's the only blue zone in the US. And it's also the only validated blue blue zone in the world. They have the largest study, 96,000 people over 50 years. And when we looked at the data repeatedly, lifestyle, people who lived a certain life lived 12 years more and healthier. We're not talking months. We're talking about 12 years. <laughs> and we're like, wait a second, why isn't anybody talking about this? Why are we still giving you know molecular treatments which we should? We're not against molecular research. It's incredibly important. Um, but it shouldn't be a hundred percent of the focus. It should be 20 percent, 30 percent, the other 70 percent should be prevention. So I, I, as usual, I did a cold call, uh, to the president of, uh, Loma Linda. I said, I want to come and create a brain institute there. And he said, come over. We went on the way there. Our mentor, Dr. Leon Thal who was the God of, um, neuroscience said, uh, this is career suicide. And we said, it's a good death. <laughs> we'll, we, it's worth yeah, it. yeah, it's worth it. So we went there and started a clinic, started doing research. I was the director of research for all the residents and not just neurology and, uh, and the director of research for neuroscience.
2: And I did a residency, oh, dual yeah. residency in preventive medicine and neurology, just focusing on okay. preventive neurology. So we coined the term preventive neurology, looking at the impact of lifestyle on the prevention of diseases of the brain, neurodegenerative vascular
0: diseases of the brain. And what we found repeatedly, I mean, uh, fail, without fail, was, you know, there's the these food wars you know, mm. keto, paleo, forget about that. Whatever your food war is, there's no question that more plants work. Whatever mm-hmm. you eat, it could be aluminum. Sorry, I don't mean to be facetious. It could be, you know, <laughs> whatever it is, add more plants with it, more greens. And because the, the 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 data was just overwhelming. We're talking about, Aisha went to Columbia University, two years, I had the kids, we would fly back and forth from between New York and LA every two weeks. And, wow. and morning, she would be in the ICU. At night, she would be in the cooking class. She's a culinary artist. And because what we saw repeatedly is food, food, food. And it's the dominant issue. Where whether weather was stroke, um, California teacher study. Right. She, uh,
2: yeah, know. no, just looking at... Large databases, um, dietary patterns, populations being followed for a long time. Um, we saw that people who adhere to a healthier diet had lower risk of strokes. Um, one one population that I work with is a California Teacher Study. Hundred and thirty three thousand people followed for over twenty years. We wanted to find out what Mediterranean diet meant and. You know, everybody thinks that Mediterranean diet is this diet that only exists in the Mediterranean region. But yeah. when you look at the dietary structure, you get a high score if you eat fruits, vegetables, legumes, whole grains, nuts, and seeds. And you get a lower score if you eat processed foods and sources of saturated fats. So it's a plant-predominant dietary pattern. And that that was linked with reduced risk of stroke. So we kind of see this pattern over and over again.
1: I mean... I, there's so many things that I want to unpick there because I, <laughs> one, one of the things I always find fascinating is when I speak to my colleagues about the fact that I'm interested in nutrition, I'm doing a master's in nutrition, I you know, talk about recipes and all that kind of stuff, it's met with a degree of skepticism that is uh, it's quite hard to overcome in an initial conversation it's almost like I always I have like a set of emails that I send my colleagues afterwards like "Look at this study, look at this study, you know I get it you know nutritional science does have issues it is you know um, polluted by a number of different biases as a lot of studies are, but it is pretty undeniable when you're looking at the wealth of evidence and combining that with mechanisms that, that support why this might be happening and the extension on life as well as the prevention of disease to ignore. And so I, I wonder how you overcome that when you talk to other colleagues about it and, and perhaps even how you overcame that y- yourself. I mean, it sounds like it was over a long period of time, but yeah. yourself, Dean, you know, being in um, a field where you're looking at pharmaceuticals, it, it, it must've been quite difficult.
0: Uh, the, the the difficulty is a historical one for each individual physician I mean remember we, we both did this uh, four years of college or five years in, in the United States and UK and Europe it's a little different but still that that pre, preamble then you have four years of medical school then you have four or five years of residency then I, we did fellowships and then you know masters and PhD. I mean, by the time you're out, you're so indoctrinated into a system, which is a great system. I, I'm not the kind that, you know, throws the baby out with the bathwater. Medical system has given us the ability to live healthfully into 70, 80 years. And for people who doesn't, they don't appreciate the healthcare system that we have, you know, I was the Deputy Minister of Health in Afghanistan. I did work in Somalia and other places. One out of four children would die before the age of five. One out of six women would die during their pregnancy. We've done amazing things with the modern medical system. So we're not saying that a modern medical system is bad. We're saying now there's time to shift a little bit towards prevention. And in the medical education, there is no prevention. The the little cursory talk that says B12 deficiency or vitamin C causes scurry, scurvy. One, and one the, chapter. Yeah, one Those yeah, have that. no effect yeah. because people say, oh, I don't see that in the clinic anyway. But mm-hmm. reality is... That's the dominant issue that comes to us in the clinic after it's too late. Aisha and I live in a place where it's literally the healthiest place in the world. Right. Loma Linda, the Seventh-day Adventist, they live significantly longer and healthier than everybody else. And I mean, just that fact should tell people there is something going on that they're doing. It's not genetic because there's a, this is not a genetically specific population. It's actually quite diverse. When you look at the Seventh-day Adventist Hispanics, when you look at the Seventh-day Adventist african American or Blacks, and when you look mm. at the Seventh-day Adventist uh, Caucasian, across the board, they live longer and healthier, especially if they live plant-based. But people say, but it's not just the plant-based. They're also faith-based and they're community-driven. They walk, yes. But when you look at the large database, when you mm. look at the large data, that's the beauty of large data. That's why randomized clinical trials, they have their place. I've done, I led many of them at NIH and up but they don't give you long-term data, which is extremely valuable. If I did randomized clinical trial data uh, research in the way that it needs to be, it would be a billion-dollar study, each mm, one of them. Yeah. So, so they have a place, uh, but what gives you data is large databases because in large databases you can parse out through statistical models and others, parse out the confounding factors, the things that could be affecting the data, and the things that are truly the dominant issues. And when you look at this, whether it's California teacher study, we've been part of that, 133,000. Advanced health study, Um, 96,000. The Columbia- um, um, Northern Manhattan study. study. The women's
2: health initiative.
0: All of them that we've been involved in. (laughs) Framingham study. Yeah. All of them, repeatedly, nutrition is the dominant issue. Right. And when you
2: see this information coming at you from different lines of uh, studies, whether it's observational studies, um different epidemiological studies, in clinical trials as well, I think you know, even if there are one or two papers that point towards the other direction, but the majority, actually have, you know, pointing more towards a healthful living and nutrition being a very important factor, that's where you move. And that's how science works. There are no absolutes mm. in science. You just look at the majority of the data and see where
0: it points and you follow. And and, and with the physicians, that's beautifully stated, absolutely. And, uh, and with the physicians, the second impediment is there is this sense of incredulity, I, lack of belief that things can be done. Because... A physician has 15 minutes with a patient in the in, in United States. In that 15 minutes, I'm lucky to listen to the heart. Tap the knee in my case. We don't listen to the heart. Who listens to the heart? Neurologists <laughs> don't listen to that. Yeah. You don't even have a heart.
2: Nothing <laughs> 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 from down. Yeah, here. yeah. No, yeah.
0: I'm kidding. I tap I'm the kidding. glabella. I do don't
2: the that that eye. My <laughs> I'm joking.
0: I'm joking. I'm joking. I do that complete exam head to toe in 15 minutes and give a full advice. <laughs> <laughs> no, but but all of that, and then believe that I can say something that can truly change people. Well, they're right. In that 15 minutes, it can't be done. But where it can be done is in the in, in, in the conversations that we can have in the communities. That's why very early on, we went to the communities. We actually lead currently lead the largest community-based brain health initiative in the country. The reason I put the community-based part, my PhD is in community-based participatory research, the community-based part, there are studies out there, the Pointer and others, that they do clinical work on nutrition and lifestyle, but I think that's contrived. We actually go to the communities, use the resources of the communities, have conversations with the communities, and then bring about lifestyle change in, in these communities. But when do we have that time in, in our clinical setting? Mm. Or ironically and fortuitously, what you do on on, on in, in your clinical setting and in the social media and what we do in social media, has been more effective than what I've done in a thousand clinic visits. Oh, absolutely! Especially if we stand for science. Especially if we make the hard convers, have the hard conversation saying that you know this little gimmick thing lectin is popular, but uh, the science <laughs> is this. And and have the hard conversations. You get bashed. You get put, you know put down. Uh, With us going fully plant based, if we had not gone plant based. The fact that we did the largest study in the country, in the world, the fact that we've Mm. published papers, the fact that we've, you know, but we we said, this is the data. Now, how we change individuals or help, no, no, we won't change them. How we create the conversations that they can create environments in their own home is by meeting them where they are, not Mm. giving dictations and edicts from up above. Here's a prescription, 20 broccolis. That doesn't work. Nobody says that. yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I, I, I've said that before. But, but no, I haven't. <laughs> so you have to meet people where they are, and everybody's in different stages of journey. And and that humility is had when you look at when when I look at myself twenty years ago, where my diet was, you know, meat, processed food, and and cupcakes, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and and a and a five or six Cokes you know, uh, soft oh, drinks. Wow. Yeah. And and I thought that was helping, dude, because I was running around. Um, so so I can't be arrogant about why, why, where people should be. We just have to meet them, and and give one tool at a time. Mm. Yeah.
1: Oh, I'm really interested in your personal journey there, actually, because you know, was it the when, when I transitioned? <laughs> 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 cupcakes. Yeah.
0: I'm sorry.
1: I mean, where do the five cokes come from? I don't know um, where. Yeah. That I mean, that that's pretty shocking. But I mean, you know. Uh, you know that aside i think it's very difficult for people to change behavior and i'm wondering what your personal experience uh, has led to in terms of how you encourage and empower other people to make the changes that you ultimately, ultimately made as well and also you know you talk about in your in your book about mimicking the savory tastes and the what you might miss as well from a diet that has a lot more Um, refined products in, sugar-sweetened products, and and meat products as well. So I I wonder how you you came across that yourselves.
2: Yeah, I I think the first step, and I know you do this all the time too, Rupi, uh, is to find out why. Why is it that someone or some people have a particular type of a habit? Um, Conversations and listening and understanding people's situation helps quite a lot instead of coming from a place where you're trying to, quote-unquote, fix things. Um being a fixer never works in the realm of behavioral neurology or behavior in general. So understanding why, um finding out patterns of behavior specifically, um going down into the details. I mean, we even have questionnaires and checklists to find out what they do the first thing they wake up in the morning. What do they eat? What do they have inclinations towards when they're under stress? What kind of foods do they move towards and why is it that healthy habits don't happen around them? And then um, obviously it's different for different people um, and finding out one element that they can change at a time. Um, Dean always brings his business background into this and creates smart goals, you know, specific, measurable, attainable, relevant and time, time bound goals. And that works in many cases because it seems easy. Um, people are busy. Um, the notion that you are working towards a better health is difficult to maintain because sometimes you don't see immediate effects. And especially when it comes to brain health, you don't see better focus and attention, you know, minutes right away. It's not like a cream you put on your skin and you see that your skin is getting moisturized and it looks better. Yeah. So conversations, education, finding out what works for them, coming from their perspective, and making sure that you earn their trust, that they don't think that you're sitting from a very elitist position, you know, speaking down to them and telling them what to do because you're the know-all. That never works. Mm. And so that's why we're very passionate about our Healthy Minds Initiative, which is the non-for-profit organization, and everything we do go towards that. And we go out out into communities to have conversations and to essentially... um, uh find out people who can be health ambassadors or brain health ambassadors and speak to individuals and spread this message of hope and empowerment
0: beautifully um one of the things about human brain is it's a 3 pound organ <laughs> two pounds. It's a jello. It's a hard jello. If anybody's ever held a brain in their hand, and I hope that if you did, you were a physician and it wasn't. An <laughs> yeah. I um, would
2: be gruesome if you I know, know, I if know. was know um, So I'm
0: not speaking to those people. But in general, um, it's three pounds, 2%, but consumes 25% of your body's energy at any one point. It can even more at times. Oxygen as much as 50% at times. It does some of its best work during sleep, which should be a clue, sleep is extremely important, restorative sleep, we call it. But this brain, this amazing brain, needs uh, low energy outputs, no low mm-hmm. energy behaviors. And another name for low energy behaviors is habits. Uh, so we develop these habit loops. And for computer scientists out there, there are the, these macro loops. These are programs that that set and repeat themselves. Well, that's literally what a habit loop is. It's a macro loop uh, program. And 90%, if not more, arbitrary number, I hate arbitrary numbers, but sometimes you have to use them. It, it stands for a lot. A lot of your behavior, even your political views are habit loops that are set early on in life. They're connected to other habit loops. That's why they're hard to change because they're interconnected habit loops. Now, these habit loops are that people quote, places like the basal ganglia but it's, it's mostly driven in basal ganglia but other places as well but these habit loops are well ingrained they were functional even when they were dysfunctional they were functional because if they were doing something bad they were serving some psychological need a bad psychological need somewhere else so they were functional to change that by the way all most of your habit loops are set in your teenage years and I tell people really you want to stick to your teenage habits uh, I have two teenagers at home <laughs> Uh, I love yeah. them; they're phenomenal. But uh, uh, th- those are not the habit loops you want. So, <laughs> <laughs> <yeah>. so <laughs> resetting the habit loops is critical. So, telling, teaching people instead of all. So, I gave some some jargon here, but saying, what if I can tell you that we can, we and us, us too, always we can change habits, and habits are critical because they can give you the kind of power that marshals the full capacity of this brain that's got trillions of connections and one times 10 to the 50th processing power most powerful more powerful than any supercomputer today today and that and we just use it to watch big brother or some other show you know it's it's incredible power but if we control the habit loops and the habit loops are changed one small behavior at a time in fact Throw away the new year resolution. Throw away the new diet. Forget about the name, whatever name you've heard. One habit. A smart, specific, measurable, and attainable habit. So let's say that you look at your life and you say, I want to, my diet is not good. That's not helpful. That actually creates more anxiety, which pulls you away, you know, the fight or flight. How about you say, you know, sugar, we all agree on sugar. Sugar is bad. That's one thing people don't agree argue about. But let's say sugar is bad. Okay, first quantify it truly because we underestimate how much we consume. How much of the processed sugar are you getting in your canned foods and your packaged foods or added sugar? I'm going to reduce that or in white bread and things like that. I'm going to reduce that by 50%. First, be honest with yourself. Is that doable? 50% of, and, and it shouldn't be just elimination. How are you going to replace it with something else that's, if not equal, at least? satiates that that need for a little bit so sugar 50% and here's the replacement for the next two months by the way sugar is as powerful as cocaine you need two months 21 days is not going to do it two months so sugar and once you succeed on that one little by the way have a little box where you check it off on a daily basis you change that one behavior specifically measurably visibly and after two months, you've actually gone through the withdrawal. Yes, you will actually feel bad first because all change feels bad. All change from high energy, high processed food feel bad because it's taking away that that overdrive. So you're going to feel bad. You're going to feel the withdrawal. And then when you settle to your resting state, even that sugar, what do we get every time? The fog has lifted. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So one habit specifically, measurably, will change. Well, it will be the nitis for the beginning of a pattern, not on diet, not on exercise, but on a control over your habit creation. That's where, you know, we, do, we the name of the book is The 30-Day Alzheimer's Solution. But it's not about, you know, we were uncomfortable. We are uncomfortable with every gimmick. Yeah. <laughs> from yeah. from process yeah. to GMO to... Uh, but even 30 days. But the 30 days is not going to give you beginning of a new life by no mm. stretch. But the goal of that 30 days is to get... Control of habit creation, and knowing that changing diet is not deprivation; it cannot be deprivation. It right, fails. Changing mm. diet is small incremental successes toward a more variety of beautiful, plentiful, vibrant life that doesn't break your brain but makes your brain. We say that every food you eat, every meal, either breaks your brain a little bit or makes your brain a little bit. So that's the the habit change pathway um that we we undertake.
1: Yeah, I mean it, there's so many things that really do speak to me about that. Uh, it really does remind me about um the TED talk that I was privileged to give in Bristol where we started our color and medicine program um at the medical school there and uh, I talked about the diet wars and how actually when you look at them 80% probably agree on things and it's getting rid of processed foods, sugar, poor quality fats, etc cetera, etc. Cetera. And really what you want to be uh, focusing on are the habits that you can make every single day that compound over time to lead to a healthier diet that you can sustain. Because the biggest thing that I find, particularly when I talk to people about the way I like to eat, is, well, that's completely far removed from the way i.e. right now that's completely unattainable for me but the way you've explained it in terms of just making one change at a time i think is it's super important and that's exactly how i like to bring it up it, particularly in our clinical appointments which are around eight to ten minutes in the uk here yeah we're really really <laughs> stretched as well We're talking about the, the brain today, and I, and I love the way you talked about um, the, the brain being, uh, you know, a, a largely lipid organ, um, it, it, very um, energy con- consuming as well. Um, I, I wonder if you can give us a, a sort of insight into the degree by which dementia is affecting the population in the U.S. I know in the U.K. it's uh, the leading cause of death Um about one in 14 people in the UK actually uh, suffer with dementia over the age of 65. It's definitely a growing issue. I'm assuming it's it's similar in the US.
2: Oh, definitely. It's the... The numbers are very scary. Um, currently, around 6 million people are living with dementia in the United States. Wow. Um, and um, this, uh, this number is increasing. And we think that this is an underestimation of the true numbers because there are a lot of communities and a lot of populations who never report it and Mm. it is considered as a normal part of aging to have memory problems um so we think it's an underestimation and the numbers um you know one in one in ten um over the age of 65 has dementia and this number actually increases quite a bit uh until about age 85 where almost 50 percent of the population have dementia Uh, it is the costliest disease it's the Mm. um the the total numbers the annual cost in 2020 was $305 billion, but that was just the direct cost. There's another $250 billion indirect cost where caregivers and loved ones take care of their family members and they lose a lot of days at work and things of that nature. So it is the costliest uh, disease. And in itself, it's going to break down our system. Forget about healthcare system. So everybody needs to talk about it at this point. Mm. And um, right now, you know, with 400 clinical trials being done, no treatment for it at all, not a single medicine that can actually modify the disease, um, we have nothing. The, the couple of medications that are out there in the market, they are only for symptoms and they don't work for a very long time, only months to about a year. And the burden on the patients and on their loved ones is immense and it is projected that by 2050, if we continue to go through this, to this, uh, uh, trajectory, the cost is going to be astronomical one point three trillion dollars, and so we all have to talk about this and definitely it it, yeah. it it has to be a big part of the conversation, whether it's our politics or our healthcare system
0: and, and and the important point here is uh, as Aisha pointed out is that much of it can be prevented right. whereas that concept was controversial just a few years ago. we've been talking about prevention for the last nearly eight to ten years. And and initially, when we were talking about this, we wouldn't even get invited to certain conferences. Two years ago, Alzheimer's Association International Conference, 5,000 dementia neurologists from around the world, the plenary talk was prevention is the new cure. I mean, Aisha and I were like jumping up and down like, okay, now it's popular. Yeah,
2: the first slide was prevention is the new treatment. Yeah. But it took wow. a long time to come to
0: that point. Exactly. and And even then, they said 60% can be prevented. We think that with optimal, optimal is hard, with optimal diet, exercise, stress management, sleep and 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 mental activity, the the five pillars that we we've named neuro and and nutrition, exercise, unwind with those five pillars optimally and again we say it's hard, up to 90% of dementia, the most costly disease. Up to 80 to 90% of strokes, Aisha specialty strokes. All and stroke is another uh, uh, uh the most debilitating of all disease can be prevented, mm. and there's no question of that yet, like you said earlier, it's difficult to sell this in the physical in the uh, in the clinical world because what 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 is required to create the preventive pathway is conversations listening yeah. time, looking at communities, and how can we do that in eight to fifteen minute increments yeah it's impossible exactly so now Physicians are good people. Let's just say that we're good people. Right? So we're, 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 we are good we're, people. We're good people. We are. We are good people. Yeah, and and we want to be. We want to be. We, we most of us, if not all of us, went into this to make a difference. Both of us, because of our families, we saw the good they did and everything. And when you hear the kind of things that that you have no access to, and it, and it claims to do massive things, the dissonance it creates inside. You have mm. to create language against dissonance. This is human nature. We have two things, confirmation bias, where we confirm the biases we had before and creating language to dis to to get rid of the dissonance. So these good physicians that want to do good hear things that say that your work is not as effective as if you did public health and spoke to people like you'd be doing. It, it creates such dissonance that you have to create language that says no that can't be it's not true mm. but the data is just overwhelming the days data is not questionable we've done five reviews now massive reviews in fact actually seven we just submitted two reviews um, uh, com- comprehensive reviews one on omega-3 and the developing brain and omega-3 and the aging brain and repeatedly repeatedly the the the, the breath and the and the force of data that shows that nutrition, especially um, a clean diet, plant-based diet. And, and the reason I say plant-based, because I'm not running away from vegan, I'm not running away from this or that. It's just, mm. if we can change the diet of UK, Europe, United States, even 20% to more plant-based, that's mm. 20% or so cost saving in healthcare. We're talking about trillions of dollars. So we can't be dogmatic. Let's move more plant-based. Let's go more cleaner. Let's go less processed. Um, uh, and, and if you're going to have cupcakes, have healthy cupcakes. So yeah, <laughs> so, Ru- so. rupees cupcakes. Rupees cupcakes. Yeah. <laughs> my, my
1: cupcakes. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not a very good baker, I'll be yeah. honest. But you know, th- this is. I'm glad you brought up these numbers because these are the things that I wanted to to ask you about. W- when you're looking at the magnitude of dementia in the US and the UK when you look at the cost of it as well and you you have a potential program that has a 90% disease reduction or thereabouts you know you, you'd think healthcare systems would be jumping at the opportunity to employ this by any means necessary because whatever it takes whether it's medical meals whether it's personalized nutritionists whether it's changing the food landscape to to make uh, the right sorts of foods cheaper we would be employing right now so there is still a, a barrier there uh, uh, where it's coming from i'm not too sure and and i think you know the fact that you you talk about the plenary session starting off with prevention, I think is it's great, but th- that often takes a long time to trickle down yeah. into practice, isn't it?
0: So you have to look at where the impediments are. So the impediments are information, resources, um, and in and, and, and real estate, it's about location, location, location. In public health, it's access, access, access. Access to information, access to resources, and access to healthcare. Access to information the healthcare system doesn't have the mechanism or the will to say that we are not doing the thing at the disease. So, healthcare system that we have now is fantastic, but it's disease care. We meet patients mm-hmm. at the point of disease. Those well checks are really not doing anything. Uh, well, it's doing. You should go to your well checks. I'm not, saying, but they're not really designed to do prevention. Mm-hmm. They're designed to actually check the beginnings of disease. Mm. Yeah, so the healthcare system doesn't have access to how to bring the information to the public. That's one impediment. And the culture change is so massive that it's better to ignore it than to meet that culture change. Culture is when language around the concept becomes ubiquitous in populations. So that that's a problem. The second access point is, who's funding this as far mm-hmm. as information? Let's just take information and research. The funding comes from resources I, I was at NIH, we actually doled out the, the funding, you know, $27 billion was the funding at the time uh, that they gave out. And, wow. and the only way that a group of scientists would give money to another group of scientists is if you could measure the outcome tangibly, like the sodium level, no, the, the glucose level, or let, let's say the hemoglobin A1C level went from 6.4 to 6.2. That's a good study. That's not how public health works. You can't Mm -hmm. get that that kind of measurements. You have to move populations and have different kind of measurements, which means against culture difference and a method of funding difference. So lo and behold, they said, okay, lifestyle works. Let's give it funding, millions of dollars. And again, now they're bringing patients to clinics to give them dietary advice. My PhD thesis was community-based participatory research. And we looked at African American communities or Black communities, sorry, uh, Hispanic communities and other communities. The possibility of transferring that information to the clinic did not exist. You have to go to the communities, to the faith communities, mm. to the churches, to the uh, and, uh, to the uh, uh, barber shops and and other places because that's where transfer of information takes place. Now, if I bring that level of complexity, oh my God, a whole hoopla. It really, yeah. <laughs> you're. But that's what has to happen. Let me so. The questionnaires that are being applied in research were created in the 1960s, 70s on 50-year-old white men in Boston, the most educated. So, And now we were applying those in 70-year-old Hispanic women in San Bernardino. Yeah. And when it didn't connect, we said, oh, it's failure. The failure is not in the person. The failure is not in the process. The failure is in the... And the tools we're using from antiquated beliefs, antiquated thoughts, antiquated processes. So what we did in our research, we actually went to the communities. It's called CBPR. You sit down with community leaders, but it's not unstructured. So people say, "Oh, but no, it's structured." You give questions, and and we got questions that were relevant to that community. We created a questionnaire out of that, then applied the questionnaire, and what we got was 180 degrees different from what what had what had been coming. To us before and and that's different than our other study which is the largest study in, in uh, beach cities where it's an affluent population it's mostly a caucasian population so it's a different kind of community and we got different responses And the africa and uh, black churches we got different kind of com- so the impediment is in in uh, a mindset that comes to us from 1950s which is the solid box mindset not the amorphous complexity, beauty of complexity. And and then the other impediment is the sources of funding, which is the research, which says, give me one solid outcome. Yeah. You know, and, and it's got to be sodium of this or potassium of this. And human behavior is not about that one solid number. Now we can give you numbers that are movable, tangible, operational, but not the way that it worked 50 years ago. So that's where mm. I see the impediment. That's why conversations that you and I and Aisha and at and, and Columbia and others, where it's a little uncomfortable, you push people and say mm. research has to adapt a little.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It, it is really uncomfortable to have these uh, conversations because we're we're very used to that model of uh, experimentation, such that we can see robust results. It's you know the pharmaceutical model of healthcare, which is brilliant, and yeah. you know like like we've said on this podcast. Is something that we prescribe every day, and mean clinic and all the rest of it. But when it applies to nutrition and behaviour change that are sustainable over long periods of time, doesn't really have the same uh, outcomes, or not, doesn't have the same weight when it when it's applied to that um, that that mode of of medicine. Um, I, I wanted to dive uh, in a bit deeper into into the the nature of of how you came up with certain ingredients like the Neuro Nine, which I I love by the way, and I, lo- I love all the different sort of names like the Neuro uh, um, abbreviation as well. But the, but the Neuro Nine, I'm I'm specifically interested in how you you came across these sets of ingredients and and why these are so beneficial from the perspective of the brain and and cardiovascular disease.
2: Oh well, thank you. Um, we were actually initially a little uncomfortable to come up with. You you know these little quips and lists, but I think it's it's a fun way for people to remember. Um, and again, that comes from our experience of working in communities to say, okay, you know, at the end of a very complex conversation, you know, people usually tell us like, "Doc, just just tell me what to eat, okay? What can I eat?" <laughs> yeah. Right? So you know, from a very complex place, then you have to like really pinpoint some things. Okay, here's here's what you can do tomorrow, or here here's what you can do today. And the neuro9 came up from um, just looking at dietary patterns, whether it was the Mediterranean diet or the Mind diet, which is um, a combination of the Mediterranean and the Dash diet, and you know a whole food plant based diet that has been studied in the Adventist Health Study. And, you know, although we we shy away from the concept of reductionism and nutrition, and mm. I, I don't like the word superfood, there is no such thing. But, you know, these foods essentially stand out when it comes to their anti-inflammatory and antioxidant capacities. And when you look at dietary inflammatory indices, they kind of stand there on top. So we chose the first nine ones because, you know, neuro nine, and of course, it's greens, beans, blueberries, because they've been studied extensively as far as their benefits for brain health is concerned nuts and seeds whole grains and we're happy that we included whole grains there because there's a war against whole grains goodness gracious all that fiber yeah. is phenomenal <laughs> um and green tea so um i think i'm forgetting it right that's a very bad sign to no no that's good right so herbs and spices <laughs> Um, and so we included that, and what we say is, you know, see if you can include any of these in your daily diet. You know, it's not an all-or-none yeah. phenomenon. It's not black and white. You can, you can slowly and gradually add things to your diet to make it even healthy. Um, and we've included all of these Neuron 9 items in, in the recipes in the book. Yeah. Uh,
0: the, yeah. the, the main thing about the mech- the mechanism actually was the driver. So the mechanisms of disease, especially, I mean, for cognition, for brain diseases, there seems to be four pathways. I again we if if we would have followed our our scientific gut we couldn't have written the book because we hate reducing things into L because yeah. it's more complex but nonetheless mm. four main processes inflammation oxidation glucose or energy dysregulation and lipid dysregulation and when you look at the genetics of alzheimers through these amazing techniques GWAS analysis which is genome wide analysis and others we now know about 30 genes or more that are associated with Alzheimer's, only 3% of Alzheimer's is driven by the kind of genes that are what we call 100% penetrance, meaning that if you have these genes, you're going to get the disease, no matter what. 3%. What about the other 97%? Well, the other 97% are affected by genes, yes, but it's a it's not a foregone conclusion. The genes in, have an interplay with lifestyle. In fact, those genes are directly lifestyle-related. The second highest risk gene is APOE4, to be exact, APOE4. If you have one gene from one parent, your risk goes up four times. If you have one gene from, or one from each parent, your risk goes up 12 times. By the way, only 2% of population in the U.S. have two, uh, two genes, two APOE4. So you would think that if you have two genes, you're going to get the disease, right? No, 50% never developed the disease. Why? Lifestyle. Why? Because APOE4 is not an Alzheimer's gene. ApoE4 is a lipid transport inflammatory gene, which means that if you have ApoE2, the, the protein or glyco, the protein that it creates is a pretty efficient protein. It transports lipids very well. It has its anti-inflammatory very well. In fact, it protects you against Alzheimer's. But if you have ApoE4, it's a bad gene. It's not doing its job well. So you actually are more easily succumbed to the disease. So there's a joke from Henny Youngman, very old comedian. Doctor, it hurts when I do this. And the answer is, don't do that, you know?
1: Don't do that. Don't do that, yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So doctor, I have a risk for Alzheimer's and stroke if I eat lipids. Well, don't eat saturated fats and trans fats. So that's literally what it is. If you have risk or if you think you have risk or if you just want to reduce risk, the things that become problematic, which is lipid transport, Mm. reduce the bad lipids and there's good lipids and bad lipids Uh, we don't want to we want to make sure we don't exaggerate the good lipids so that people eat too much of even the good lipids glucose dysregulation you know glucose dysregulation is affected by lipids mostly but even by sugar and processed uh, sugars well don't eat processed sugars doctor i I have risk of developing diabetes we did a study on nhanes one of the largest um, databases we actually excluded diabetics and looked at pre-diabetics insulin resistance even with uncontrolled pre-diabetics insulin they had lower cognitive state that's not, that's not meant to scare you that's meant to mm. empower you because glucose dysregulation can be affected through diet yeah powerfully and it also points to
2: the um, the disease as a spectrum people think that when they start having Alzheimer's disease, it's it's all of a sudden. But we know that these processes actually start happening in our bodies and in our brains decades before the symptoms manifest and the brain loses its resilience and kind of gives up and the brain cells are damaged to the point where people tend to have memory problems. So, you know, knowing that anything and everything we do every single day actually contributes to that pathological process or gives the brain the right environment to grow and heal itself and to thrive. I think that's quite empowering.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you touched on lipids then and I wanted to talk about fat in the brain because I think there is a, a new sort of pervasive idea that because the brain is largely made up of fat that we can somehow eat tons of fat and it will go straight to our brain uh, i know you guys both as physicians know that that's not uh quite what happens and there's no storage capacity for the brain as well which i think a lot of people need to understand so but what is this uh, uh, delicate relationship between fats in our brain and fats in our in our diet
2: yeah thank you for bringing that, this up because it is a big misunderstanding so yes the brain is a fatty organ it has a lot of fat i think that has been exaggerated people say it's 70 percent fat but but when you look at the calculations, that includes the water uh, content as well, so it's much lower than that. But mm. um, the fat in the brain is all structural fat, so it's a part and parcel of the wall of the cell, the structures of the neurons and the glial cells and the dendrites and the axons, and it's you know you don't have um, you you don't have storage fat in the brain, which is um, a brilliant evolutionary concept because imagine what would happen to the brain if we went into starvation mode, right? It would start eating up itself. That doesn't Mm -hmm. happen. So um, the only kind of fats that the brain needs on a regular basis are omega-3 fatty acids. And they're small enough to go through the blood-brain barrier. So the blood-brain barrier is a very tight junction. And it's like, you know, like security guards at the brain that don't really allow a lot of things to go in. Um, that's why you know infections and bigger, larger molecules are not allowed to pass through the blood vessels into the brain. And so omega-3 passes through and we need it on a daily basis. But as far as saturated fat is concerned or cholesterol is concerned, it doesn't the cholesterol that our body produces in the liver is enough to add to the structural organization of the brain, and we don't need to consume more of it. As a matter of fact, if we consume too much saturated fat, the very intricate blood vessels, which we have millions and millions of tributaries of these blood vessels in the brain, they get damaged. We have very sensitive layers of endothelium in these arteries that get damaged with too much saturated fats and trans fatty acids. And There was a time when Alzheimer's disease specifically was uh, considered as a disease that uh, essentially was related to abnormal protein deposition in the brain. But we now know that there is a lot of overlap between vascular disease and Alzheimer's too. So the damage to these small little sensitive arteries can actually cause damage to very susceptible areas of the brain, including the hippocampus, which is a part of the brain related to memory encoding, the frontal lobe. And we see these small little tiny strokes without any manifestations like paralysis of one side of the body or loss of speech or blindness, the small vascular damage to the brain actually tends to increase the risk of Alzheimer's disease too. So it's very important from a public health perspective to for people to know that you don't need to eat a lot of saturated or, or fat in general, and especially no need for eating saturated fats and trans fatty acids because it can damage uh, the vasculature
0: in the brain. Uh, One of the things that we are seeing, and we're writing something about this now, which is not recorded as a, in the United States, we have these codes that you record the disease, ICD-10 now, it was ICD-9, ICD-10, UK, you have codes as well. There is no code for mild to moderate white matter disease. Nobody records it. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, you don't record that. okay. But given that both of us see patients uh, older than 55, um, um, almost exclusively. Except I see some athletes as well who come from traumatic brain injury. But, but we see the prevalence of white matter disease ubiquitous. Oh my presence, Present. Goodness. Always. And, and it's directly related to diet, to their mm-hmm. lipid levels or hemoglobin A1C levels. I mean, it's, it's crazy. I mean, to know that you are seeing white matter disease. And by the way, if you're seeing little dots, a few of them, it doesn't mean that it's, oh, it's nothing. They say that whenever you see anything on the MRI, multiply it 10,000 times at the molecular level and and throughout the brain, because you're not seeing it fully manifest, but it's there. So Mm. that to me is the biggest epidemic in the West. A thing that we're not even recording. The thing that's actually behind the fog, the thing that's behind the cognitive decline that starts early, but not to the extent where a person is calling themselves demented or a mild cognitive impairment. It's the beginnings of it. So if we can reverse that, and we know we can reverse that through diet and lifestyle exercise and everything else, we will have done more than any other public uh, health uh, endeavor. But here's the thing. Uh, studies have shown that kids as young as 12 years old, you know, all this hoopla about ADD and ADHD, uh, ADHD is, is, is a real thing. It's a little overstated, over recorded in US, but it's a real thing. But it's nothing compared to telling people that, you know, the kids are still myelinating. They're actually building their brains up to age 20, 21. And you're seeing white matter disease in children because of diet? Mm -hmm. That by far supersedes any danger of ADD, ADHD, or anything else. Because you're structurally damaging the brain that early. So we think that people shouldn't just wait till they have memory issues. Um, They shouldn't wait till they have some stroke or vascular disease. They should assume that if we're not eating the healthy food, that you're actually affecting brain early on. Now, this is not a scare tactic. Again, I Mm. repeat this not just for sake of perseveration, but for sake of empowerment. Every meal that we choose to eat a healthy, tasty... By the way, this is not me be obsequious to what you do or what Aisha does. Um, I have to be obsequious to Aisha, she's my wife. But 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 it's truly meant that when people make teach people how to make healthy, tasty, easy foods, that's by far the most important public health uh, um, uh, tool we're giving, because every mm-hmm. meal is either creating inflammation, oxidation, glucose dysregulation, or lipid dysregulation, or it's the opposite. So the Neuro Nine, coming back to that, it's not a magic phenomenon we we hate doing these kind of gimmick things but yeah. it's the idea of that these are they have the highest anti-inflammatory index antioxidant index as far as glucose and lipid dysregulation because they have high fiber and low uh, glycemic index and everything else these foods when added to your diet on a daily basis you only have so much stomach space if you're eating more greens which take a lot of space yeah. it leaves less space for the donuts uh hopefully, yeah hopefully and and that replacement is a 180 degrees change in, in direction. So that was the point of the Neuro9 and, and Aisha's work and creating recipes around that, basically.
1: I, I think it's really uh, interesting because the the formation of you know call it whatever you like a list of foods um that you, you put together to inform people really has its uh foundation in in the, the processes that you just talked about glucose regulation managing inflammation that i want to go back to now and i think one of the best things about the book was the um the neuroplan spectrum and for those of you who who aren't watching it's that the spectrum of food by which you know you can sort of concentrate you can visually see where you should be concentrating your diet towards and it's things that we've mentioned beans nuts legumes etc um and you know the uh the things that we should be having less of or not at all in the diet as well um so i, th- I think from you know from the perspective of habitual change it, it can be quite useful uh, particularly when it's underpinned with, with that explanation yeah um, and i wanted to go back to one of the points of difference, I think, between yourselves and, and perhaps some other physicians that are fully plant-based like yourselves is um, the, the judicious use of extra virgin olive oil. Mm-hmm. Some people say you shouldn't be having any oil on your diet whatsoever, <laughs> yeah. whereas you're you're a little bit more moderate with, with, with olive oil. I, I wonder if you could explain the difference um, between yourselves.
2: Yeah. Um, <clears throat> well, honestly, one of our favorite statements is to the best of our knowledge today um, Mm -hmm. we go by the data and if tomorrow the data comes against (laughs) what we've been following for years we're going to be honest about it and say well you know it has changed now we're going to change too Um, and when you look at um, olive oil um, there really isn't any data of it being damaging as a matter of fact it's it's beneficial Um, especially when it comes to switching from a source of saturated fats to extra virgin olive oil which is a source of mono and polyunsaturated fats. Um, and like we were talking about it earlier, yeah, fats are important for the brain. It's the quality mm. and the source uh, that matters the most. Um, so we're, we're not against olive oil. We used to be very judicious about it, but then after reading about it, and right now Dean and I are doing a systematic um, review on uh, consumption of extra virgin olive oil and prevention of Alzheimer's disease and stroke. And the data is quite... Quite profound, um, as far as its protective um, uh, effects are concerned.
0: Nutrition data is n- never going to be well. Never, as we you know with AI, who knows? But but it's 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 going to take some time for it to be perfect data. But again, we say we look at massive trends, a massive data. Um, the data against it comes from uh, vasoconstriction studies, and even then, it was not the best studies because it didn't take into account when they took it how much they took, and other factors that were related to the vasoconstriction. And the fact that some of the things that we definitely know are healthy when they did the vasoconstriction studies with it, they actually vasoconstricted. So, so to look at a food item in isolation of everything else mm. and with one little sliver of, of a window of data, I think is not helpful. Yeah. Now, we're not going to go all out and say oh, extra virgin olive oil is the new panacea. It's not. It's not. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I told one of my patients that they, they can take extra virgin olive oil, and he came back with a bottle of extra virgin olive oil. A month later, I said, why did you bring this? He said, oh, I have three glasses of this a day. I one. can three assure glasses, you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I can assure you there's a qu- quantitative component as well. We always say in small amounts to the best of our knowledge right now, you know, as a topper as opposed to the bottom, you know, you, you don't if drizzle gonna, it on salad. On salad. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and, and, and that's, that's helpful. Uh, but beyond that, um, uh, so that's where the data is right now. Right. And, and we go mm. by the data. And then the other component is public health. If I go to some of the communities that we're working in, and uh, we say the data shows whole food plant based, we say that. But where you should be is not even close to that. You should be sugar for the next two months. That's it, mm. and then the next thing, as you can do it, as these resources uh, allow themselves and 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 it has to be that way, otherwise, all we're doing is just pushing our books and 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 the and 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 being part of clans and mm. the last time we knew we've had a pretty interesting life being in n i h and Afghanistan two months apart we we just want to go with data and and uh, and and what people can bring into their lives um yeah.
1: Yeah, I I I totally agree, and I think you know it, it comes back to that idea of meeting people where they're at, um, rather than trying to push a uh, that what could be perceived as an agenda without really appreciating what the ultimate aim is, and that's just to help people live as healthy as they can and as healthy as they want to as well. Um, I wonder if we could touch on inflammation in the brain actually, because there's a lot of people who are now coming around to the idea about neuroinflammation and how that impacts. Not just memory and concentration, but also mental well-being as well um, and, and and also specifically how, how it relates to sugar and perhaps some other uh, components of, of yeah. fast food
0: So uh, inflammation is, seems to be the common pa- f- downstream pathway of a lot of other processes and I mean if you look at glucose dysregulation or lipid dysregulation, downstream you're going to have inflammation. Uh, not even downstream, almost like parallel at times, but but it's not usually parallel. So you see inflammation. So inflammation is the major denominator of pathology. In some diseases, it's the main pathology. For example, traumatic brain injury, it's the uh, it's it's the, the the thing that pushes the disease over the over the edge. Um, inflammation. And now where we're working, we're hoping to study start a study. Um, although stay, the IRB is taking its time, but. Um, it, they have these ligands that bind to inflammatory products in the in the in the brain. So you actually look at neuroinflammation in real life. So that would be amazing thing. Neuroimaging, uh, neuroimaging studies. Yes. So so you can actually look at when you give somebody certain foods to see what the inflammatory process going on in the brain. It's it's a beginning. Really? It's, a, it's wow. at the at the beginning stages of the of the research. So we I don't want to overstate it, but it's pretty exciting. Sure. It's extremely exciting. Yeah. So we know that all those processes, that the common pathway downstream is inflammation. Be it if you have insulin resistance or diabetes that's Mm -hmm. uncontrolled, definitely that's a path that leads leads to it. Or as I was talking about before, even ApoE4 and lipids. One of the pathways, lipid deposition. Yes, atherosclerosis, clogging, and even... But the other more common and ubiquitous is inflammation as as a product. So, inflammation is a major component. Now, ironically, people who have autoimmune diseases, who have inflammation, studies have shown that they've, if they've been on anti inflammatory drugs, they actually did better. But then when they tried to reproduce it, it never came to fruition. So, what's a good anti inflammatory that you can take mm. on a daily basis? Again, I'm coming, uh, it seems to come back. It's food. It ties <laughs> it's everything food. together, yeah, doesn't it? Yeah. 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 And then the other thing is exercise. <laughs>
2: Yeah.
1: Mm.
0: Um, uh, exercise seems to be a, a very powerful, uh, I hate another general term, cleansing, because again, all these cleansing things, but, but uh, it, it seems to be a great system of flushing and cleansing, as well as direct inflammatory reduction as well. So uh, ironically, we're talking about food, food, food.
1: Mm. When it comes
0: to behavior change, because it has an immediate psychological, immediate physiological response Exercise is the thing that we actually start people first. And if they've never exercised, a 10-minute brisk walk every morning is what we start with. 10, and that 10-minute brisk walk, it resets the circadian clock as much as we, 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 we can. It, it gets the metabolism going. It gets the habit of exercise. And also, it is mood stabilizer. We know that exercise mm. is three times more beneficial than any anti-anxiety medicine. So, so, exercise is a powerful adjunct to food as as a medicine,
2: and I think it's that multifactorial, comprehensive approach to health that makes the biggest difference. you know, um Dean talked about exercise, we now know that sleep when we sleep, that's the most important period of of the day when the brain cleanses itself, when all these, um, you know, debris and the byproducts are essentially removed from the brain. We have a, a janitorial system in our brain that is completely dedicated to getting rid of all of these byproducts that eventually could lead to inflammation and uh, damage to the brain.
1: Yeah, yeah, because I, I think another thing um, that perhaps I've been guilty of in the past is just really thinking about the brain through the lens of neurons, whereas actually there are some really important cells that are just as important, like the microglia and your astrocytes and all those re- various functions. I, I wonder, is is there some uh, uh, data that, that shows how food impacts those as much as the neurons directly
0: themselves? <clears throat> Uh, I would say uh, even more because by, by, by just sheer numbers more, because uh, mm. when you take the glia, the whole family of glia, they outnumber the neurons 10 to 1, 9 to 1 to 10 to 1, depending on what, what series you look at. They are structural. They're your immune response in the brain. They're your anti-inflammatory response to the brain. They're the, they're the support structures. They're the things that actually connect the neurons. They're the things that actually wrap up and protect the neurons. These glia are the hardest working cells. I mean, I know that the GI docs will th- disagree with me, <laughs> but they are incredibly hard working. And they're also high energy, high energy structures, be it from their mitochondria and everything else. And there's data that the cells that get damaged first are the glial cells. And remember, they're multifactorial, multifunction because of their immune response, their cleansing and all that. When the glee are affected, the entire system goes awry. You know, in the hospital, we think that we run the hospital, the doctors. Not even close. <laughs> it's the nurses. It's the, you know, the, the, the people that manage the, 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 the administrators. system. Administrators. Administrators and all of that. They're amazing. So yeah. if doctors go away, the nurses can take care of the hospital. It will still <laughs> run, I can assure you. Yeah. Yeah. But if the nurses and the administrators and all of those are, are, are affected, the hospital is gone mm. and uh, so uh, the glial cells are profoundly affected i think uh, there's data that they are affected even earlier mm. and and their effect is a cascade phenomenon meaning that when one series is affected others are affected as well so i would say to people yeah we're we're proud of our neurons but those glial cells are are who we are they they contain us like for example we think about the rest of our bodies but those micro bacteria in our gut, they're actually outnumbering us and they're doing an amazing yeah. work, so yeah. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah I, I want to come back to actually the, the immune system and how that impacts, um, uh, well, how the brain, impacts, impacts the immune system and vice versa as well. But one thing you mentioned there about exercise is its ability to um, remove toxins. And, and you didn't shy away in, the, in either of your books about the potential negative impacts of um, meat and fish products. Um, and this kind of comes back to my sort of uh, my in the spirit of vulnerability my confirmation bias about wanting to eat some fish in my diet and I look at the studies are like actually yeah there's an association between fish consumption and vegetables and you know lower rates of disease and lower rates of dementia so I'm more inclined to rest on that that data rather than the wealth of data that you guys might be talking about uh, because I inherently want to enjoy my grilled sardines. Yes. But, you you know, I I wonder if you could talk a bit about the the potential negative impacts of of meat and fish.
0: So here's uh, a shocking piece of information. We have communities that support us um, at at a time where our book is coming out next month. We're going to say something that's very... Next week, next week. It's very (laughs) controversial, but it's not actually. So here's the transparency. We're vegans, healthy mm. vegans, because it can be unhealthy vegans quite a bit. So uh, we are healthy vegans for three reasons, environment, animals, and uh, science of nutrition. Uh, so th- as it happens, we're so glad that, that the three Venn diagrams superimpose, uh, but the data on fish, you're right. The data on fish is, is there's no negative data at this point, uh, especially fatty fish. We call mm-hmm. it smash, salmon, mackerel, uh, anchovies, uh, you know, so. Um, we don't choose to eat it for a couple of reasons. We think if there's no cle- if there's no healthy inv- planet, there's not going to be healthy humans, and we're devastating mm. the oceans, and all they have to do is look at the data. The other part of it is we worry, although the data shows that people who eat fish, their brain is healthier, uh, the data is not as strong as people think it is. Like you said, it's a little bit of a confirmation, but uh, mm. but there's some association. So we say for people, in fact, in our populations, if they're starting to say, go to fish first. And then if you want to go away from fish, that's your choice, but but go to fish. But we worry a little bit about um, uh, the fact that the difference in animals is we're concentrators. Because we have a liver, because we have organs, we have a lymphatic system that concentrates. And upward concentration, because as the animal eats other animals, they concentrate higher. In fish and oceans and, 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 and even farmed fish, we... We check for some chemicals. We check for mercury and lead. Not as consistently as people think we do. But we don't check for the other 30,000 chemicals that we've added into the oceans. Not even close. Actually, we don't check at all. And we worry that that might be having negative. Now, we might be doing confirmation bias on our side. We're looking for things to find negative in fish. So having said that, I throw the idea. And that's not that's not solid science. That's... Uh, we call that, you know, uh, uh, we're extrapolating from data. So that's weak um, and that's where it is. And, and I will never and we will never defend outside of the realm of science and the weight of science. When mm. when we, we raised our kids, we said, the problem in arguments and politics is not truth saying. Everybody's telling the truth in one way or another. Sometimes, sometimes they're not, but let, it's the weight of the truth. When you over exaggerate the truth, it's a fallacy. When you understate this truth, it's a fallacy. So we want to make sure that people get that this was extrapolation and it's got a weak, it comes from a knowledgeable base, but still weak. So that's where we are with fish. We tell people, if you can settle down to fish, oh my goodness, you will have done so much good for your health if you've gone from processed meat, if you've gone from red meat, if you've gone from beef jerky, which I used to eat in Pittsburgh, by, by the by the, yeah. it's terrible, it's it's horrible, but especially the fact that it's full of salt as well, then you've yeah. done a lot of good. So that's a little complex, but that's reality of life. Um, that's where we are. Yeah,
1: I I, do, I really do appreciate that transparency, and I think you know, as people of science, um it's really important to have those sort of pragmatic decisions, even if you know you, you're being pulled in different directions. And I'll be honest, like. And probably on my journey towards 100% plant based eating myself for reasons that also include animal welfare. Because um, I recently got a puppy <laughs> about a year ago, and uh, she just reminds me of like a little lamb. Like, yeah. you know, she's just so cute and, you know, she's so loving. And you know, it's, I never was a dog person. It was my partner <laughs> who actually convinced me to get a puppy. Um, and you know, I've never understood why people are just so drawn to their pets. And now I completely understand, <laughs> like she sleeps in our bedroom, you know, take for walks all the time, give a treat, like everything like I do for this dog. I love um, Ruby, So com- yeah. <laughs>
0: completely tangential talk. We uh, adopted a dog that was in bad shape. Um, yeah. uh, we call him Obi-Wan Kenobi. Like the Star Wars? Yeah, Jedi warrior, yeah. Obi? Yeah. Obi. Yeah. And, and he's a mix of Dalmatian and, and uh, Basset Hound. So one black eye. And I'd and like you. I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm very straight going, uh, exercise busy. the busy. <laughs> <laughs> I literally, this is going to lose a lot of audience probably. Hopefully I not. cried thinking that if I lose this dog...
2: Yeah.
0: It just like yeah.
2: breaks our heart just seeing that innocence in his face. <laughs>
1: totally honestly yeah. i i feel exactly the same uh, yeah. like we, we sent her to puppy. this is really going off topic we sent her to to um to puppy daycare recently And i remember <laughs> just thinking oh my god i hope she's <laughs> fine when she comes back and we're watching her because they show her on instagram yes. we're literally watching her <laughs> like Aww. oh my god there she is and she's playing and all that stuff <laughs> and like i i never I, I never thought i'd be that person but i am
0: that's amazing. Well, uh, well you you are a great interviewer. You took it some, You did a Barbara Walters on us. Uh, you know, we're, we're we're tearing up. We went from inflammation and neurotransmitters and APOE4 to E4 today. tearing
2: up on our puppies. puppies.
0: Yeah. But nonetheless, having said that, you're right about the fact that the data so far, like we always say, to the mm. best of our knowledge today. And that's not a that you know, science is the only humble field out there because it, there's mm. no uh, if the data changes, we change. Um, mm. uh, at least with the science part, we change. At, at this point, the science on fish, um, at, at least clinical trials show that people mm. consume fish. Oh, here's the thing. Instead of red meat, instead of other things, they do much better. Yeah. Yeah. And as far as More omega-3
2: than. fatty acids are concerned, because that's one thing that keeps coming back yeah. over and over again. Mm. You know, our systematic review showed that there are certain times in life, like, as far as supplements are concerned, right? Especially for people who choose to be on a plant-based diet. There are, you know, it's not necessary for everyone. It's just a certain stage of life or a certain um, yeah. age group that it's very important. We found out, and it's being published, it's actually under review right now. It's. We found out that um, for children who are growing and their brain grows massively during the first five years.
0: Actually.
2: During pre-birth, mm. exactly. I should have started from, from the know, beginning. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> pre-birth, growth of a child in the first five years, pregnant women, lactating women, and people who are in their midlife or you know, around uh, mid-60s who may experience some mild cognitive impairment benefit the most. They, mm. might, they might benefit from um, omega-3 fatty acid replacement. But for the rest of us, if we eat a wholesome diet that consists of seeds and nuts and extra virgin olive oil, sources of poly and monosaturated fats and a plant-based alpha-linoleic acid, then we actually do very well.
1: Okay, so so you wouldn't suggest that people perhaps around the age of 45 50 should think about omega-3 fatty acid supplementation in the form of algae oil or with high amounts of epa and dha or is do you think we can uh, we can achieve that through diet alone
0: Uh, the diet alone but but here's the nuance um so the the transfer or conversion from ala to epa to dha is a funnel state um meaning that Mm. the 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 enzyme that does that job actually does two, three jobs. For some reason, they didn't hire more people for that job. And it's that one guy, <laughs> late very night, cheap. he's yeah, very cheap. He's doing a lot of work. Now, he has to also operate the omega-6 pathway. Mm-hmm. And by the way, the omega-6 pathway is a dominant pathway. And But when we talk about omega-3, omega-6 pathway, they're both needed in the body. As we know uh, for the audience, omega-3 pathway, and I'm simplifying it profoundly, but it's uh, anti-inflammatory, anti and others. Omega-6, pro-coagulant, pro-inflammatory. And by the way, we need both of those. I mean, if you're not coagulating, you'll be bleeding all over the place. So, so we need both. As it happens, because of stress, because of diet, because of lack of access, all these factors, uh, and when we get to talking about stress, we develop a baseline higher inflammatory state as we get older. To cheat that system, and yes, we are cheating that system. Uh, I don't like the word biohacking. Uh, it's been used by, oh my goodness, we'll, <laughs>
2: can't can't hack your yeah, way to yeah. health.
0: But but but, yeah, but we yeah. <laughs> we we plan our way towards more anti-inflammatory. You have to have more omega threes, uh, and uh, the ultimate goal is EPA DHA, but ALA mm-hmm. at very low level. But whenever people say low level conversion, they think that's bad. No. We get plenty. Even if it's at 8% conversion from ALA to... We get plenty. If we get two tablespoons of uh, chia or flaxseed, we're good. But at the same time, to make sure that that conversion is done, lower your omega-6. But you're lowering Mm -hmm. your omega-6 not because of that conversion alone. Omega-6, as we get older, it becomes quite detrimental. And our Western diet has gone 50-fold increase towards Mm omega-6. I mean... If there's been a revolution in the 20th century, it was not your iPhone. It was really? the fact that they yeah, the fact <laughs> that they were able to pack more calories in a small space with a profound amount of omega-6 in it. That's mm, So yeah. if we can reduce the omega-6, also give the liver a chance to do that job as well, which means less alcohol for multiple reasons, that three combination actually you are in a good direction. You don't have to do a lot of other things. But if still, if you're worried, take an algae-based uh, omega-3 or omega-3 source, and, 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 and then you're fine. The three things that we worry about so far, to the best of our knowledge, as far as nu- micronutrients are concerned, B12, omega-3, and and then the third one, which came out of our work at Cedars-Sinai, we were the main PIs in this study, the retina is a continuation of the brain. So if you look at the retina, if you have these tools that can look at the retina at microscopic level, you can look at amyloid protein, which is the bad protein that accumulates with aging and Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. And when you gave people curcumin in high doses, and this this paper actually was published this this year, since we are now no longer in Cedars, our name went from first to the middle, as you know how that is. But it's okay, we're in the paper. (laughs) the, The curcumin actually bound to the, uh, 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 to the amyloid and then when it binds, the body removes it. Mm-hmm. So we say add curcumin, all herbs uh, and spices uh, are great, but curcumin seems to have a special power. Add that with pepper, a pepper, which increases its bioavailability.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: If you're worried about B12 deficiency, first check it and find out why, because normally you shouldn't have B12 deficiency unless you're taking some kind of a- antacids or something that's going mm-hmm. on in your GI system. But in, if all that is rules out, then take a B12. And by the way it's not just for vegans 40% of the United States have B12 deficiency. And then the third one is omega 3. Optimize your diet and you'll be fine but if you're worried just take a supplement.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think th- those are definitely the ones that I uh, recommend. I haven't come across that study uh, this year, so I'm definitely going to be reading that. That sounds really really interesting. And you know, I always get asked about curcumin, particularly from the perspective of it being um, a, a nootropic or something that's very good for the brain. Uh, I was going to ask you about that actually, about w- what your perspective on nootropics are and, and whether that actually has there's there's a space for that in, in, in clinical work. But um, yeah, I, I think if you can achieve that through diet, that's obviously the, the way to go. Um, you mentioned alcohol. I, I didn't want to ask about alcohol. Again, my confirmation bias is I, I wouldn't mind having a glass of red wine every now and then, but the more I look at it, and I also look at it through the lens of society as well, and whether I should be recommending any amount of alcohol because of the other uh, consequential effects of alcohol consumption. The fact is it's addictive um I'm coming around to the idea that we shouldn't be having any is that is that something that is in line with your yourselves or
2: absolutely um We've we've learned quite a bit about alcohol over the years. Um, as you know, there was a time when it was recommended for brain health, but with more and more data, and especially with the nuanced information that we're receiving, we now understand that the alcohol component—forget um, f- about the resveratrol and all these other uh, mm. nutrients that are available in wine—the alcohol component causes a lot of damage. It's essentially putting our body in a major state of shock, uh, especially the liver and the filters in our body. And we have recently found out that the amount of alcohol needed for brain is essentially zero. We You, you don't need it. And the amount of resveratrol uh, in, in wine that you would benefit from is, you know, you have to drink a truckload of wine to get the amount of resveratrol that's good for the brain. Um, and we also think that the studies that have shown benefit, um, they essentially... Um, it probably might be because of the conviviality that is associated with with alcohol you're sitting with your friends and you're in with your with your tribe and and that's that's a very strong anxiolytic um and so that's probably not really taking into consideration and could be a confounding factor but no I agree with you and the way we approach it in communities because it could be a you know you lose a lot of friends if you say things like this so we say you know if you've never drunk alcohol don't start it for brain health but if you do yeah. enjoy you know a glass one here here and there never more than a glass a day then I think that should be okay um of course mm-hmm. in the context of a healthy lifestyle
1: yeah Absolutely, always within that context, and and you, you, the neuro lifestyle, which which you alluded to before, you know, nutrition, exercise, unwinding, restoration, optimizing. Um, I think is again a very good sort of perspective, a lens to, to look at the brain. Uh, and I wanted to sort of close our conversation, really talking about the unwind element and how that relates to, not only brain health and, and creativity, but also uh, our immune system and how we can support uh, our innate immune system as well through, through our thoughts and, and other actions that can support unwinding and relaxing.
0: Before we get to that, I want to kind of attack some words. Um, sure. <laughs> two words that we, we, we want to make sure that people, if they don't mind getting rid of from their vocabulary, <laughs> one is moderation. Moderation uh-huh. is a word we use to get out of doing things so yes. yeah yeah so i mean <laughs> i used to eat um seven servings of processed meat a day in pittsburgh what is moderation for that person four four servings is that any better the reason moderation doesn't work is because there's no measurable quantifiable denominator so why even use it what do we say identify the optimal whether you believe us and we look at our data, always look at the data, see if we're using any trick words, like, you know, uh, and and of course, you we are completely aligned. Uh, and if you believe us, then the optimal is as unprocessed, as whole food, as plant-centered as possible, and quantify that. And your job is to move towards that. Forget about moderation, this and that. How am I moving in a measurable way towards that? The benefit of that is not even about food. It's about you feeling a sense of control, which is bigger than food which is bigger than the next diet plan. So the second word we, we absolutely abhor, which we think is arrogant, mm-hmm. right, which is a vestige of, of the centuries of, of uh, well, let's not make it too bombastic, <laughs> is the word motivation. Yeah, yeah. Motivation, what is that? Is it, it feels like I'm supposed to get up in the morning, motivated, rah-rah, arms up in the air, you know? No, throw that away. If you don't feel motivated, it's okay. What creates this feeling of movement forward is small incremental successes. Small measure, which connects to our previous term, doesn't it? Instead of moderation, small incremental successes. Once you create these small incremental successes that you check off, it creates a momentum that is way bigger than any motivation. So just those two words. In fact, out of this book, if you get anything besides... Her amazing recipes oh. <laughs> is those two concepts of empowerment of behavior change. Instead of these bombastic words that feel like they're empowering, because I just listened to this guy talk and he he was on stage and he was a big guy and he was jumping around and I was so motivated. And then the next morning I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm not like him. Why? And, and I feel bad. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, small incremental successes. Now, stress. We actually divide stress into good stress and bad stress. And that's not a little play on word. It is important because your brain. This there's a reason why evolution invested all this energy on this three-pound organ. Why, really, for me to just reproduce? Uh, I, I don't. I think there's more to it. It's information capture. Initially, the information capture was to get away from that tiger or bear, but civilization has given us more information capture tools. And if you're not information capturing throughout life, which is stressful sometimes, good stress, your brain actually decides that, oh, this energy investment at 50 years of age is not worth it. It actually withdraws and pulls back and shrinks. In fact, the number one factor that led to brain shrinkage was lack of cognitive challenge. Mm. Now, as much as people think Sudoku and Crossword Puzzles, which will at some point sue me, oh, both definitely. of them, these companies. These You've behemoth, said a lot of bad things yeah, about Sudoku. Uh, yeah, the uh, Sudoku <laughs> Crossword Industrial Complex will come after me. <laughs> but those are great. Those are fine. But we did a meta-analysis in 2018. It was published um, looking at cognitive games and, and MCI patients, which is pre-dementia patients. Mild cognitive Mild cognitive impairment yeah. patients. And what we found was three factors. Purpose, yes, in science, there was such a thermos, and I will define that purpose. Complexity and challenge. That's good stress. Bad stress is when you're doing activities that are not clear as far as purpose, doesn't have clear direction, don't have clear timelines, and they run on and on and on. And they're creating a feeling of tension. That comes to us from evolution, the fight or flight. At the core of our behavior, and I'm a behaviorist, I'm writing a book on behavior. At the core of our behavior is that fight or flight. As much as we think we're so complex and we've read thousands, no, fight or flight. If we can manage that, we've got control over our little universe. Fight or flight, sympathetic, parasympathetic, run everything. Now, that's one element. The fight or flight was needed because if the tiger was coming at you, you better focus all your energy away from reproduction from your immune system from your digestive system from your growth system and w- focus towards muscle running vasoconstriction so you don't bleed and run that was that's basically it and if you look at it that way you see that anything that creates that tension short term it's good in fact we've seen that short-term tension even that that kind of tension we need it the, we need yeah, it and actually for survival. It creates resilience but if that state of feeling persists and persists and persists, it creates profound damage. And in Mm. our Western world, or actually in the world in general, we have developed systems where that persistent, unsatisfied, incomplete discomfort, which creates the sympathetic undertone persists, Mm -hmm. which lowers your immunity, lowers your uh, uh, growth, lowers your sex hormones, lowers your thyroid lowers every system. How? Mm. Through what we define as the limbic, hypothalamic, pituitary axis, as well as the sympathetic. Now, this is cool. Every emotion you feel is translated into your limbic system and frontal lobe to say good or bad. If it's good, it sends a different information to your hypothalamus, which sends the different information to your pituitary. Now, pituitary is hormone central. The tip of your little pinky, that's how big it is. But that little organ has your control of your growth hormone, thyroid, insulin, sexual function, and directly through your adrenal, your immune system. Everything is controlled there. So your everyday emotions continually affect your hormonal system, including your immune system. If you have good feeling, it sends a different information to your hypothalamus and pituitary, which actually stabilizes all that. So two pathways, sympathetic, parasympathetic, we call them autonomic, and the limbic hypothalamic pituitary, all coming from your emotions. Now, that's a little daunting because as soon as I say that, people say, oh, even if they don't say it verbally, they feel it. I have no control over that. This is too complicated. Or the next thing is I'm going to meditate and do mindfulness, which is very important. But there's a little more thing to this. We talk about, and in the book we talk about this, How systematically break this down under your control. Smart goals. Spend some time writing your good stresses, specifically and measurably. And we're not used to this. You'll get better and better at this. And your good stresses, specifically and measurably. And work towards reducing, eliminating, and delegating the bad stressors over time. Increasing, empowering, and tooling the good stressors. And that's not a pill you take and the next hour you feel better. That's a tool you develop that makes you permanently better and better and better and better over six months. But that's powerful because by doing that, you actually take control of something that's not been controlled before, your autonomic system. You take control of something that's never been even talked about, which is your limbic, hypothalamic, pituitary system. But in a functional way with writing, for example, I don't like my job is not specific. We drive to Loma Linda twice a day, two hours twice a week, two hours, one way or the other. That's terrible. Mm. Um, But we do other things in Loma Linda, which is this clinical trial, this thing and seeing patients, those are good. So how do I reduce this over time? And we've, you know, we do telemedicine now. And how do we increase the good ones where we do public speaking and talk and increase that and our life which is pretty full now is a little more controlled, less anxiety, less stress, less inflammation. Yes. Those emotions have more profound effect. And that's how you get control over good and bad stress. And by the way, good stress is things like learning a new musical instrument, learning Mm -hmm. how to dance. For some of us, it can be more stressful, bad stress to do learn how to dance, but (laughs) we will leave that alone. Yeah, we won't say who. We won't say who. (laughs) Learning uh, Learning to play cards with friends. Yeah. Learning a new language, running a team, book clubs. Those are are taking classes, you know. Those are good stressors that push your brain, but also are the biggest factor for connections of the neurons. Sorry, one last point on that. Here is a power: eighty-seven billion neurons. Each of them can make two connections, or thirty thousand connections. And how do we make the connections? Exercise and good stress. That's power. That's that's control. That is power. I mean, I, I, I love the way that you've
1: mixed in sort of the the logical engineering pathways of the brain and, you know, modeled that on the creativity element as well and why that's so important. And I just, I, I look at you both and obviously you're, you're both very um, advanced in, in your scientific thinking, but there's, there's a lovely blend of like the culinary creativity there and the emotional side as well as the science across you both. So I think it's just a wonderful team that you've got and uh, and the book is incredible as well so i just thought i'd take this moment to to thank you both for your work and uh, i can't wait to support you in all your f- future endeavors
2: we love everything you do everything you stand for your work your food my goodness um <laughs> and just being connected with you it's just a joy I'm, I'm i'm looking forward to speaking with you more hopefully in the future and coming and probably cooking together
0: and Definitely. we don't have just passing conversations. No, we have families.
2: You're your family now.
0: <laughs> oh, that's so lovely. <laughs> no, we mean it. We, uh, yeah, that's good oh,
1: and bad. Oh, I appreciate. That. <laughs> no, no, that's great. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, that's great. Honestly, I could have chatted to you guys for so much longer. I've got so many other elements and things that I didn't even ask about. But, uh, you know, we'll, we'll save that for another time. And I I, I didn't realize that you're writing another book as well. That's amazing. I know where you get the time, you guys. <laughs>
2: so much to say. So much to converse about. It's,
1: a, to it's say, a beautiful. to yeah. say, life. I really hope you enjoyed that with Dr. Dean and Dr. Aisha Shazai. They are just such a unique combination uh, and I loved chatting to them. Um, To summarise our conversation, plant-forward diets are fantastic through the perspective of not just brain health but also uh, vascular disease, cardiovascular disease and mood as well. You've learnt how creativity has a bi-directional effect on the brain and this is not just about Sudoku or crosswords why you don't need to eat a ton of fat to support your brain but quality fats are essential for uh, your brain and specifically when it comes to omega-3 fatty acids Uh, um, you've also learned about the other lifestyle interventions that support brain health please do go check out their book Uh, it is a fantastic resource full of all the different things that we've talked about today it's called the 30-day alzheimer's solution and you will find all the links to the books and their work on the show notes on the podcast page of the doctorskitchen.com see you here next time